0: Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be addressing uh, verses 26 and 27 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've been doing so, as it relates to the whole letter, for quite some time now. The Lord has blessed us that we've uh, made it this far. I trust He will see us to the end. But as a way of reminder, let us take note of where we're at in Paul's letter. We have recognized week after week that Paul has laid a foundation in the first three chapters where he has revealed that God has chosen and formed a people for himself, which is the church. It is in these latter three chapters of this epistle... That Paul now instructs God's people how to conduct themselves in union with Christ and with each other. We can even, even further see, as we've been going through chapter 4 specifically, that it can be divided into two parts. Negatively, how believers, are not, how believers should not live in verses 17 through 19. Excuse me, this is the second half of chapter 4. It can be divided into two parts. And then positively, which is in our section this morning, how believers should live in verses 20 through 32. Positively, Paul tells the Ephesians that they would be renewed in the spirit and put on the new self, a new life founded in the passive and active obedience of the new Adam and the likeness of him who they were created Paul now gives practical applications as to how the new person in Christ lives day by day. There are five specific exhortations for believers in this latter half of, uh, or this latter part of Ephesians chapter four. We addressed the first one the last time I was before you, and this morning we come to the second and third that is, to be angry and not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. These exhortations are rooted in the doctrinal truth of the first three chapters. And as a reality of new birth comes new life. Paul Bain helpfully observes that a product of being created in the likeness of God is obedience. That it would make us obey all commandments that it will not divorce the first and second tables, but will join with works of religion to God, works of mercy to men. For many that make some profession and frequent religious duties may hence be convinced not to be truly religious, because though they are thus holy in these regards, yet look at their dealing with men. They have no truth nor mercy. So many men, for moral parts unblameable, One would think them little saints, void of wrath, of uncleanness, no swears, true in their dealings. Yet, they have nothing in truth, because the same men have no acquaintance with faith and repentance, nor no care of holy and religious exercises. And so this morning, as we address verses 26 and 27, we see this moral imperative, but it is not divorced from the first table of moral imperatives where we are to worship the one true and living God. And so here we are seeking to know how to love our neighbors as ourselves. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. So that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let us petition Him this morning. O oh, Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning and seek of Your help. For we sit before Your Word in earnest desire that we may understand it, that we may some- know something more of who You revealed Yourself to be, so that we may be better worshipers of you, better lovers of men. Lord, we recognize this help happens by the power of your Spirit, so we ask we would submit to this power this morning because of your goodness and mercy and steadfast love which endures forever. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen we've quite the task or at least maybe i have quite the task before me this morning as we address uh, such enigmatic statement as to be angry and not sin So suggest that there is a uh, that there is an anger that is done in righteousness is also to recognize that as it can be done in righteousness that it that it is related to an outworking Of God. Certainly, we see this in the incarnation of Christ, and we see it in the hypostatic union where we recognize Christ and his humanity also becoming angry and overturning tables, grieving in his heart. But we also relate it to as Christ being the God man, understand its correspondent to the divine. And so, we have some work before us, or I have. Plenty of work before me this morning, and I want to address it under three headings. We're going to look at first things, explained things, and applied things. Under these three headings, the goal is to address this idea of anger, hopefully righteous anger and unrighteous anger, something about divine anger and wrath, and something about human anger and wrath so that we may better live before a watching world, so we may better respond to the sin that so easily entangles us in our own hearts, but certainly which is before our ever-watching eyes in this world. And often, and very often, that happens to us in our own congregation, in the, in the church. Before we get to that, though, we must address first things. First things are important because they set a foundation or a groundwork for what we're about to say so that they may be guide rails, so we may not say more than what is permissible in Scripture. And certainly that we would not say more that is permissible according to the divine nature. James Ranahan is helpful here as we're going to address, at least in short, what we've been addressing from his son's book that we've been reading in a small group, A God Without Passions, this idea of the impassibility of God. It's important for us to understand this this morning and come to a better understanding of it this morning because we want to understand what Scripture says as it relates to the wrath of God or that we would not kindle the anger of the Son of God. So we must understand something about impassibility so that we may not speak improperly about who God has revealed himself to be. James Ranahan says, impassibility may be defined in this way. God does not experience emotional change either from within or affected by his relationship to creation. It is a necessary complement to the doctrine of divine immutability, expressing the fact that God is unchangeable in his essence or being, and in his outward acts in the world. Not mentioned by James Ranahan, but it also comes into play, this idea of divine aseity, that God is not dependent upon anything for his being, that he is of himself, such that he doesn't require something in us so that he can then become something in himself. He is who he is. I am that I am, is what he told Moses. James Ranahan continues, he says, When making positive assertions about God, our teachers have expressed the way of eminence. This principle teaches us that when God is described to us in terms of human virtues, we recognize that those virtues exist originally, eternally, essentially, and perfectly in God, since He is infinite, eternal, and eternal. And unchangeable in his being. He is perfect in all that he is, his love, mercy, justice, etc., are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable virtues. Our problem is that we forget this basic truth and impute human characteristics to God. This is the root of modern exceptions to the historical doctrine, or historic Christian doctrine. It makes God over in the image of humanity. God is love, divine love, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love. His love does not increase or decrease in what he is. It is what he is. While scripture in some places does seem to attribute emotions to God, we must look past the human language to the perfections they signify. In the same way as we've been talking about the idea that when Scripture attributes to God wings, or arms, or eyes. That we would look past this human language, this accommodated language, to see the divine perfections that they signify. There is correspondence, it's just not one for one. In doing so, if we don't do so, and we're not careful, we certainly could become, in the most extreme situations something close to the Mormon religion that makes God out to be a former human or an exalted human, such that he really does have arms and eyes and a face. That he really does emote in these ways and is given over to these passions. But we must do better. For example, love is in God as an eternal perfection not as a passion brought about by an encounter with the creature. Theologians is often said that when God is described in the language of human emotion, these are expressions of effect, not affect. In other words, we are reading about the effects God causes us to experience of himself, not effects that we have caused God to experience in himself. If we read of them in the same way that we experience human passions and affections, we diminish God, making him only a greater version of ourselves. Is God just the greatest relationship that we can have? Is, is our relationship to God just the greatest, the exemplified relationship that we have with any human being? Or is it on a whole nother level? Certainly it is because it is a divine human relationship. So we must understand something about the divine so we may not overstep the bounds and apply something creaturely to the creator. And so it is with the anger of God. It is the effect of God's perfect, eternal opposition to sin or unholiness. It is not proper to say God is anger or that anger is God, but that God's opposition to unholiness is experienced as the anger of God, works out providentially as the wrath of God. You can kind of see it in, the, in that statement that if you were to say God is anger, it doesn't taste the same as God is love, and I don't think that... Is just because of our current cultural stage that elevates love above all other virtues. Because we could say God is just and affirm that. We can say God is merciful and affirm that. God is good and good is God. But we would not speak the same of anger. But the correspondent of anger to God is an effect of God's perfect, eternal opposition to sin, or unholiness. It is the consequent reality of a holy God coming in contact with an unholy or corrupt being. It is real. It's not abstract in, in the sense that we would make it to nothing. It is very real and threatening to us outside of Christ. Paul says earlier in Ephesians, we know it well that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air uh, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest, even as the rest. We recognize that the anger of God is threatening. The wrath of God is serious to those outside of Christ. We must understand these first things because if we are to apply them or explain them, we must keep in mind that we don't serve a God who is given over to fits of rage, to fits of passion. He's not quick-tempered. He's not, he doesn't lose his cool. As a matter of fact, Scripture de- describes God exact opposite. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Let us hold to these first things as we continue to understand this idea of being angry and not sin and that this, and that this, and that this anger would not continue on with us. Let's look at our passage this morning and let's, let me try to explain these things. We read that be angry and do not sin and do not, the, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Put it another way. Be righteous in your anger and if not, turn quickly from it. For hellfire is quickly kindled in it. Here we see that the evil one is close to anger. Though when it's righteous anger, it's directed at him and it works opposite. It's a repellent, but unrighteous anger is close to the devil. It's close to hellfire. It's quickly kindled in it. So we must put it away as quickly as it rises in us that it would not continue on to the setting of the sun, that we would relent and repent of it quickly. What is this, though, of righteous anger, of holy anger? Let's look at a few examples of it. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, we have an example of human righteous anger. In verse 39 of Exodus 32, we know that they had built a golden calf at this time. They had taken all the spoils of Egypt and and melted it down and convinced Aaron to build for them a calf who they called the Lord, the one who had saved them out of Egypt, and so they were worshiping this calf. Calf, and it says it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it this anger that Moses possessed there was holy anger. Holy anger against unrighteous living. Let's look at something divine. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. I'm sure... We know uh, this psalm well, but we see that the Lord has uh, set an anointed one. In verse seven, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth is your possession." And then we find, in verse 12, "Do homage to the Son." that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. We recognize the holy anger of the Son of God is one that is to be dealt with as he is judge. That he is to break them, speaking of the nations, with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware that the kings should show discernment and the judges of the earth would take warning that it would result in worship of the Lord with reverence and rejoicing with trembling and ultimately that they would pay homage to the Son. For the opposite, to walk opposite of that is to experience the eternal, holy opposition to sin. And so, experience the anger of the Son. They experience His wrath in it. We see again that in Isaiah 42, what's similar to this idea of anger and wrath is zeal. Zeal is associated with it, and here it is to be said as we Make reference and and see the connection in Christ as the God-man. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Justice to the nations is, is that he will reward those who are deserving and he will punish those who are deserving. If you drop your gaze down to verse 13, The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemy. This idea of zeal to God, ascribed here to the servant of the Lord, is an affection compounded of love to God and anger against that which dishonors God. We see it in the words of Christ that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot love God and love mammon or love money. For to love God is to hate all other or to be angry against all other counterfeits. We'll see it in Christ, in the incarnation in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is in verse 5. It's a, it's a quick uh, statement as to this holy anger. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Here, Christ enters a synagogue. He sees a man with a withered hand, and he knew that he was being watched by those around him to see whether or not he would perform this act of mercy on the Sabbath and so break the tradition of man while obeying the law of God. And it says Christ's response to their snare that they had set up to their false thinking about the law of God, his response to that was anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And we recognize that happens there in the human nature of our Savior. We recognize that in Christ we see this perfectly played out, this idea of holy anger. It was not that Christ was reviled. It was not that Moses was disobeyed. It was that the worship of the one true God was profaned. The holy anger that is promoted in Ephesians 4 or commanded in Ephesians chapter 4 is an anger that is related to something outside of ourselves, not to our own person. For in in Christ's example, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. He was struck and He turned the other cheek. And so for us, we watch over our hearts that our, our anger would be associated to offense against a holy God, such that in, in relation to this, we may find ourselves angry at times at the reality of this world. It is appropriate to be angry when you watch streets filled with people determined to set the right that they see or determined to see that the ongoing slaughter of unborn babies continues unfettered in our country. It is right to be angry at a world that seeks to make evil good and good evil such that if you would go into a general crowd of people of this world given over to the futility of their mind and ask them to define such thing as what is a woman and watch them falter and stumble and be unable to explain it because they've been given over to the hardness of their hearts they've been given over to a debased mind this holy anger is actually good but it's not because of us it's because of God and his righteous character it's because of a sin soaked world that that denies the one true and living god Holy anger is never about us. It's always about God. And we see in Exodus 34 and verses six through nine, where where, Paul, or where Moses is put in the cleft of the rock, and the Lord passes by him. And it's revealed to us that in that moment this, that we serve a God who's slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love such that were the Lord not graciously slow to manifest this anger fully, no sinner could live for even a second. You see, we turn this anger is not an offense to us, but it's rightly explained and applied to an offense to God. How do we apply this understanding, though? What are the applied things related to being angry and not sin? Not letting the sun go down on our anger. That we would not give an opportunity to the devil. Paul uses exact wording from the Septuagint in Psalm 4.4. That says, be ye angry and sin not. Feel compunction upon your beds for what ye say in your hearts. This translation of the Septuagint is, is that we would be angry and sin not, feel compunction or moral caution upon your beds for what you say in your hearts. Paul translates it: speak or excuse me, be angry and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here, the divine author explains to us that the principle here, as it relates uh, to this moral commandment, is that we would be morally cautious about any anger that lingers on into the evening. And we'll talk about how to apply this here shortly. How are we to be angry and not sin? Or how are we angry and sin is the first question. The first way we are angry and sin is that we're indifferent and lack anger. That would be one way, one pathway to sin. How are we, because here though, uh, we here are given permission to sin. or Excuse me, we're given permission to be angry Righteously, such that an indifference to the sins of this world and the deep perversion thereof would be a sin in itself. And we all know this one well, that venting anger disproportionately or indiscriminately would be to exude the fire of anger, but in an untargeted and unconstrained manner where such wisdom and discernment are needed. We all know that to be angry in sin is when we vent our anger disproportionately or indiscriminately, such that we do harm to others or we uh, direct it to God. We are well uh, acquainted with this anger and as we've been trying as I've been trying to explain how are we to be angry and not sin first is that it arises from a love of God and our neighbor with hatred of sin when his anger arises this is Gill says when his anger arises from a true zeal for God and religion when it is kindled not against persons, but sins, and when a man is displeased with his own sins and with the sins of others. Consider Gill's words here and that it's not kindled against persons, but sins. Sins are committed personally, and so it's, it's not that we necessarily love the person and hate the sin, for God hates sinners personally but such that we would see in the persons their sin and recognize that we too were once children of wrath. We too were once bound to the fertility of our minds. We too were once darkened in our understanding. This is how we, we, it arises from love of God and our neighbor with hatred of sin. We are to be angry and not sin is that it is well-ordered. It does not promote rashness or outbursts. James chapter 1 and verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Before that, he says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Righteous anger is well ordered in that it doesn't promote rashness or outbursts. It is contemplative. It is considering the offense of a holy God. The other way that we can be angry and not sin is that it must be proportionate to the sin. God hates all sin, yet His anger is fiercer against such sins as idolatry, tempting God, blasphemy, the shedding and the shedding of innocent blood. We recognize that all sin deserves God's anger and punishment. But the, f- the fierceness or the depravity of the act is proportionate to the experience of anger. And so for us, if we were to get angry at every sin, we might be angry people. But that we would rightly experience righteous anger that is fiercer to such sins as idolatry, tempting God, blasphemy, and the shedding of innocent blood. Another principle as it relates to being angry and not sin is that it is to work from personal to stranger. First, we are to contend with our own sin, then our brothers and sisters, the church, then the stranger or the world. It certainly can start with an observation of the world, but then rightly work back to ourselves such that we would be saved from self-righteous indignation. Like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, where he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Righteous anger usually can work or is rightfully works in our own recognition of the sin and anger of our own sin. Then, to be justly anger at the sin within the church, and then finally, the sin in the world. Often we observe it first in the world, but we may be self-righteous if we leave it there. It may become an, uh, a sin, uh, the anger may be sin if we leave it in self-righteous indignation and not pray that the Lord would continue to preserve us if we're not walking in such sin And the Lord would protect us from doing so. The the next principle of being angry and not sin is that must be within the compass of our calling. As we read earlier, Moses ground the calf into powder and he took vengeance. He had the Israelites drink it. It's not for us to act as Moses in his execution of God's... uh, retributive justice against the people of Israel but it it was within the compass of Moses' calling for he was a magistrate so that if a private person should reform public abuses and plead zeal unless his calling were extraordinary it were of fleshly fury and not holy zeal so that we understand that our anger must be within the compass of our calling, and certainly action resulting from it would be also. And finally, that it must stand with love of those whom we are angry. We are compelled to pray for our very enemies. We are to desire the salvation of all men. If you have anger that prevents you from praying for someone, it is not holy. And righteous anger if you have anger that doesn't desire the salvation of that person then it is not holy or righteous anger but if you are angry at the sin that so easily entangles those around us and you pray for them pray that they would be delivered from the snares of darkness and you desire their salvation your anger is permissible What is the outcome of this? The outcome is that if we are to love the Lord, we are to hate evil. We are to be watchful upon our hearts for the sinful anger. We would be ever uh, diligent to look upon our hearts for sinful anger. So we must therefore be watchful against this inordinate passion and must not excuse it as if it were our nature to be hasty. Well, I'm just a passionate person. I, I'm dispositioned to fits of anger. No, we must mortify the flesh. We must put away the deeds of our old self. We must watch primarily our pride. For sinful anger is often just an injured ego. Things don't go the way you thought they would go. Somebody treats you in a way you thought you should be treated. You don't get what you think you deserve. A situation is not what you imagined it to be. We must watch over our pride, for sinful anger is often just an injured ego. We must watch where we determined that, that, that we deserved better or more of anything. We must watch that we are not practical atheists. We often respond to a circumstance as if it didn't proceed from the hand of God and our ultimate good and His glory. Whereas we are all sinners, deserve nothing but wrath and anger, should find the shorted circumstance as just. And as we are in Christ, so does work toward the beautification of the body. We act as practical atheists in our anger when we respond to circumstances as if they didn't proceed from the hand of a loving father. We recognize that if we find ourselves shorted in any way, in any relationship, in any circumstance, we must recognize that we deserve much greater. We deserve much greater. We deserve the full anger and wrath of God. We must recognize and submit to the will of God, for He is working towards the beautification of His body. We must be watchful in the first stirrings, are to know ourselves so that we may snuff it out at its earliest showing. There are different stages of a fire. And as it relates to fire protection, which I don't often talk about here from the pulpit, but here it's very applicable. If you ever go into a building and you see the fire sprinklers that hang down below the ceiling, the idea of those sprinklers is that they would address a fire in its incipient stage. That's the early stage of the burning, that it doesn't go into free burning and then overcome the system, but that it would put out the fire quickly. So it is with our own anger that we would recognize the first stirrings of it in our hearts, that we would know ourselves well, we would know the situations that would lead to angry outbursts. And so that we, must, that we may snuff it out at its earliest showing. And that though it may come upon us, that the sun would not go down on our anger. That it does not remain with us. This is bitter and sad anger. This is an anger that will dwell till it will have its revenge. And it is detestable to God. It is so serious as to interrupt a positive command of God. Where Christ says in Matthew 5 that if you have uh, an offense, offended your brother, you are to leave your sacrifice and go and make right with your brother. You would leave this positive command of, of worship and go and make things right with your brother before you make your offering. We may ask ourselves, how will we come back from such a place where bitterness so easily arises and ensnares us? We may be faced this morning under this teaching as this has been explained and applied, that we find ourselves in the throngs of angry moments. We may look back at our week and recognize how often anger so easily arose in us. And so we must take comfort not in our ability to do better, but in one who has suffered on our behalf, one who has taken upon himself our iniquities, who has suffered the wrath of God so that we may not. And let us take comfort in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73, beginning in verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let us praise. Let us pray, praise and pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning. We praise your name. We praise you that you have saw fit to bring these children of wrath into adopted children, through Christ our Lord. You have brought us, Lord, from being subject without hope to the passions of our flesh and minds and certainly to the passions of anger. You have delivered us in Christ you've given us new life in him to walk according to your law so that we would love you and love our neighbors. How often, Lord, we fall short only to be renewed in faith and repentance and knowledge of a Savior who has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. we taken our guilt and stood in our place so that we may walk as children of light. Help us, Lord. Help us now and forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.